Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is John Samples. I'm director of the Center for Representative Government here at the Cato Institute. And I'd like to welcome you to our book forum today on Reclaiming Conservatism by Mickey Edwards. Let me begin with some administrative issues. Uh, we'll have comments from uh, Mickey Edwards and Ed Crane initially. Then we'll have a, a question and answer session thereafter. Uh, and after uh, all is done, we'll decamp upstairs for lunch. May I ask you that you also uh, turn off your cell phones or put them on silence so that uh, we won't be disturbed in uh, what we're going to hear today and in our event. Today, the Republican Party is beyond all doubt in serious trouble. It is looking forward to what is possibly a historic defeat in November. And the GOP has responded by nominating a candidate for president who some people have questions about his uh, principles and political outlook. In fact, this has uh, caused quite a bit of uh, consternation, and I'm going to quote from a letter from a conservative leader. Quote, the Republican Party is in serious danger of extinction because it has ceased to represent anything more than a broad-based pragmatism. If John McCain becomes the Republican nominee, I see a disastrous defeat that will end the Republican Party because the Republican Party is at its roots a party of conservative principle. I believe that would be tragic, unquote. Now, in fact, that's not a letter from 2008. It's a letter written to Ronald Reagan in 1975, and it was not about John McCain, but about Gerald Ford, who did run in 1976 and did lose. The author of that letter in 1975 was our guest today, Mickey Edwards. Um, his book, Reclaiming Conservatism, is not only about uh, how Republicans, but also conservatives, lost their way in gaining power after 1980. And it is about the way forward out of that wilderness, not least by gaining a real sense of what conservatism might mean in the United States. Mickey Edwards was a member of Congress from Oklahoma for 16 years and a chairman of the House Republican Policy Committee. He was a national chairman of the American Conservative Union and one of three founding trustees of the Heritage Foundation, about whom he comments in the book, I should, I should add. He has taught at Harvard and Georgetown and is now on the faculty of Princeton's Wilson School of Public and International Affairs as a vice president of the Aspen Institute. He's been a regular columnist for the Chicago Tribune and the Los Angeles Times, and a weekly commentator on national public radios, all things considered. Please welcome Mickey Edwards. Uh, I, I was already told that the, this podium can either go up or down. I refuse to concede that I may not be tall enough. Uh, so, I, you know, I'm going to live with it the way it is. Uh, you know, it's a real honor for me to uh, to have a chance to do this. I, I've come to Cato for a number of events. I, I admire this organization uh, tremendously. And I suppose uh, as you read the book, uh, you might argue that what I am claiming, when, when I talk about reclaiming conservatism, uh, is to go back to a time when what the conservative movement was about was not about church and it was not about king but it was about liberty. And it was about the idea that what we were trying to conserve 
was not a European model of government, but a constitution which started with the premise that the rights belong to the people unless they've delegated those rights to the government. So that's kind of where I'm starting from. But let, let, me, let, let me make a, a couple of observations. One is, if you, if you pick up the book, the first part of the book, the beginning of the book, was something I added after I had already started writing it. And something happened that caused me to go back and say, I've got to rewrite the lead. And it was this. When, uh, when President Bush began issuing signing statements in which he declared that as President of the United States, he had the authority, the inherent authority, to disregard duly enacted laws that he had signed. Now, you know, uh, under the Constitution, the President, under Article 1, Section 7, he has two opportunities to do something when the Congress enacts a law, right? He, you know, he can, he can veto it. If he vetoes it, Congress has a chance to try to overturn it, and the president will almost always win. The president's power in issuing a veto is so strong, he will almost always win. Or he can sign it, and when he signs it, it becomes law, and it's binding on the president and every other person in this country. Uh, and as a result of the signing statements, over 1,100 that he issued, uh, in connection with his claims uh, of a unitary executive, which basically said Congress, the people's representatives, can no longer tell the executive branch agencies that they have to file reports or that they have to do anything else. Uh, the result of that was that you had a president who was essentially saying, I am above the law. You cannot tell me what to do. And, and people who cared a lot about the Constitution got very upset, as you would imagine. And so two groups, the American Bar Association and the Constitution Project, on which I serve a, a, as a board member, set up bipartisan task forces to look into uh, these presidential claims uh, and on, I was part of the ABA task force and the Constitution uh, Project task force. They were bipartisan. You know, they had people from the left. They had people from the right. Both of them, both, both task forces unanimously concluded that what the president was doing was unconstitutional. Uh, and then the ABA sent it to its uh, House of Delegates, which again overwhelmingly concluded that what the president was doing was unconstitutional. And so... I was given an opportunity to come testify before the House Judiciary Committee about this with, with the president of the ABA and, and to talk about this. And I, and I said, you know, this is going to be an occasion. Be the, you know, there's partisan divisions that, that, that are so strong in the Congress. But here is going to be an occasion where there is no partisan division. I was going to walk into that room. I was going to testify to my, to my former colleagues. But this was not a matter of party versus party. This was a matter of the, the Congress of the United States versus the executive branch claiming powers that did not belong to it. And I could not conceive that there would be any disagreement. And I walked in. I was really feeling pretty good. You know, you get to testify before Congress, you know, Jim, and you, you walk in and, and you testify before Congress and everybody agrees. And it's one of those kumbaya moments. And it, you, you felt really good about it, Right. Gave, I gave my testimony, the president of the ABA gave her testimony, and I was shocked, truly, maybe you call me naive, I was shocked that not one Republican member of that committee, they all call themselves conservatives, 
and the president who declares the authority to disobey the law, calls himself a conservative. And not one conservative member of that committee found anything at all wrong with a president of the United States declaring that he was above the law. And I got angry. And I went back, and that's now the beginning of my book. Because we today, as, as conservatives, but look, you know, we'll talk about my, defi- my definition of a conservative. And by the way, I have friends who, who say to me, as, as they watch what's happening, as they watch the secret wiretaps, as, they, as they, they, they watch the refusal to get a court-ordered warrant, uh, all, all of the th- or, or defiance of, of anti-torture uh, uh, laws, you know, who say to me, well, Mickey, you, you must be a moderate. I don't know what a moderate is. You know, what's a moderate position on slavery? I don't know what, what a moderate is. You know, I'm a conservative. And the question was, do I say that, that they, the people who now represent uh, church, who represent the neocons, who, you know, want to bomb everybody, you know, is that conservatism? And I say, no, I'm a conservative. They're not. I don't know who they are. You know, I have no idea what, what those people are, but they're not conservatives, as I understand conservatism. Let, let me another uh, leap to another point. Dana Milbank, you all read Dana Milbank uh, in the Washington Post, writes entertaining columns. The president of the United States, George Bush, was going overseas, and he was going on a trip where he was, he was going to leave the United States for a period of a week or whatever, uh, and he was going to go over and meet with foreign leaders. He could talk about any number of things, right? Treaties, you know, basing agreements, whatever else. The president was going over. So Dana Milbank explained that, that for this one week at least, the president was stepping out of his role as head of government to step in his other role as head of state. And, you know, so then that leads to a discussion of what does that mean when the president for at least a week, instead of acting in his role as head of government, is now going to act as head of state. What does it mean? And I would ask my students at Princeton, well, what's the significance of this? And I would get all kinds of answers. Well, you know, there are things he wants to be careful to commit to. He wants to be careful not to make alliances with with oppressive government. No. What's the point? The, The point is the president's not the head of government. The president of the United States is not the head of government. He's head of state. He gets 21 gun salutes. But we have a system of government in which the branches of government are separate, they are independent, and they are completely equal. I, I just I, I, I was tell, telling uh, John and Ed that I just came from testifying uh, uh, on the Hill uh, about war powers. Which, it, which, by the way, is not a shared power. It's, it's a power of the people through their representatives in Congress. And, and little by little, as all of these things began to pile up, I began to realize that what was happening was that we who, at one point, were the champions of constitutional principles, of limited government. We, we don't live in a democracy. We live in a constrained, limited democracy in which the powers of the government are very carefully sub- circumscribed. And, and what our Constitution did was this. When, when you talk about American exceptionalism, people cringe. A lot of people cringe. Maybe you all don't cringe. Uh, but a lot of people cringe when you talk about American exceptionalism because they think what you're saying is we as Americans are wiser, smarter, 
taller, stronger, whatever, you know, than, than all of you other poor people out there in the world. Well, that's not what it means. What it means is we're exceptional because we have an exceptional form of government. And what our form of government was that was exceptional was that in previous examples in Europe, in Asia, you, this was your system of government. You had rulers and subjects. You had rulers and subjects. And the founders said, in this country, we will not be subjects. Here we will have citizens and their government, not rulers and their subjects, but citizens and their government. And we, instead of the rulers telling us what to do, we're supposed to tell the government what to do. A fundamental change in the nature of the relationship between citizens and government, between people uh, and their government. And, and the conservative movement in which I became active, I don't want to say how long ago it was, but let me say it was I, the first national convention I was at was before Barry Goldwater was the nominee for president. Um, when I became active, what conservatism meant was you had all these people who were for government power, and you, were, you had all these people who believed in activist government and, and the wiser people. Those are the ones who come to Washington, right? The wiser people, you know, would, would set the rules for everybody else. And we conservatives were the ones who were going to hold the line and say, no, the powers belong to the people, the rights belong to the people. Uh, and that's been lost. What, I do a couple of things in my book that are really outrageous, uh, and, and I apologize in advance. Uh, one of the things I do is you'll see I look at the Republican National Convention platforms from 1964 to 2004. In 1964, which was when Goldwater people, you know, dominated, the focus was on liberty. The focus was on individual rights. What was the Republican National Convention platform in 2004? The, the, the words that appear in that platform more than any other word are, are George W. Bush. Repeatedly. So that the conservative movement has become basically uh, a, a tool of the executive branch. Why? Why? It's not because he's the executive. It's because party loyalty Party loyalty has trumped obligation to the Constitution. I get into that, too. I also talk about how that, uh, how that came about. I was, I was in the Congress at the time. This, you know, I'm not, you know, I want to make this short so we can get into Q&A. Uh, so I'm not going to get into it except to tell you that it's in the book, and I'll be glad to, you know, talk about it uh, in the questions. But fundamentally what we've done is we have changed the nature of conservatism, we have um, we, we've allowed a religious uh, emphasis to move into a dominant role uh, among for many in the conservative movement. We are a religious people. You know, Tocqueville found that. For the most part, we are a people who take faith seriously. We're a religious people. But we are a secular nation. A religious people living in a secular nation. That principle has been lost. The neocons who, have, who came in, I, one of the things I do in the book is I trace the movement. I trace, you know, the various groups starting with the defeat and, and uh, 
shooting then uh, of George Wallace uh, and the infusion into the conservative movement. The Republican Party was ripe for takeover uh, in the South, uh, as were conservative organizations. Uh, And the infusion into the movement of Southern populist, racist, fundamentalist, you know, from the George Wallace uh, belief in in strong government, strong welfare program uh, politics, they came in. Then the religious right came in uh, as solely as a political tool to try to find some way to convince, you know, Democrats that they ought to be voting for Republicans. And who did you go after? You went after the people, you know, who, uh, who attended church. And so that's how you reached them. And out of that came first the moral majority, which was uh, multi-denominational, uh, and then ultimately uh, uh, the Christian coalition. And then there was the, you know, the neocons who came out largely out of the socialist movement, who, who thought that we were too acquiescent to Soviet power, who cringed at what was happening in, in the, uh, the freewheeling lifestyle of so many Americans that, that bothered them. But they did not reject the idea of centralized authority. They did not reject the idea of using government power to achieve the ends that they thought were, were worthwhile. They were just like every other lefty, you know, you ever found. You know, and they came in, and so you ended up at the primary level. Influencing Republican, convention, Republican primaries, you had the people from the religious right, not because they were a dominant number, but because they would work in primaries when nobody else would. And you had at the very top levels, you, know, you had the neocons beginning to influence policy, saying, yes, we believe in liberty. Yes, we believe in democracy. They believe more in democracy than in liberty. You know, and what we need is a democratic world, and we have the power to make that happen, to, to enforce it. Uh, and so... I'm going to stop there. You know, a quick overview of the book. You know, we can get into all the detail you want. But the point about reclaiming conservatism is to take it back from alien forces who have moved into the movement and turned it into what we once objected to. Let me just say, this is George W. Bush. If Lyndon Johnson had done the things George W. Bush has done, and the Congress of the United States had acquiesced in these violations of the Constitution, real conservatives, true conservatives, would have marched in the streets in protest. And this book is the beginning of my march in the street in protest against what has been stolen from us. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Mickey. Our commentator today will be Ed Crane. Ed is the founder and president of the Cato Institute. He has been involved in national politics at least since joining Students for Goldwater at University of California at Berkeley in 1964. He has been at the forefront of promoting personal accounts in lieu of the current social security uh, system and was one of the first national leaders of the term limits movement. Ed is the co-editor of several books, publisher of Regulation Magazine, serves on the board of U.S. Term Limits, and is a member of the Mount Pelerin Society. He's a chartered financial analyst and former vice president at Alliance Capital Management. Uh, Ed's writings have been published in the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, the New York Times, and Forbes, and he has been interviewed and appeared on a multiple and all of the leading media outlets. He also holds an MBA from the University of Southern California. Ed? 
Thank you, John. I should mention that uh, uh, Youth for Goldwater at uh, Berkeley was a, a, a small group. Uh, I was precinct captain for two precincts, and I knew the names of all the voters for Goldwater. You, you got five in one precinct and six in the other. Uh, but um, first, I want to say uh, uh, that this is a, a this is the reading copy of Reclaiming Conservatism. It's a, it's a terrific read, very very good book, uh, lots of wisdom in it, lots of, uh, of solid analysis. The one thing I won't accept is is this statement uh, from Mickey uh, when he wrote. I am not a libertarian in the purest sense. I believe there are important roles for government, but like many conservatives, I believe in the government constrained by certain fundamental and overarching principles. Well, this is such a straw man that people put up against libertarians. I mean, the idea is that we're all anarchists, and we're not. We, we sign off on that statement completely. Mickey Edwards is against the war in Iraq. He's against war warrantless wiretaps. He's against abuses of civil liberties. He's for free markets, low taxes, deregulation, and gay marriage. I mean, if this guy's not a libertarian, I, I don't know who is. So there, you've been outed. Uh, I, I accept the title. Okay. Um, let me say a few words about the things I like about the book. I like the book in general. It's a terrific book. Uh, but he writes such things as this. Many, uh, and conservatives in particular, like to talk of American exceptionalism. He mentioned that in his comments. But it is the Constitution, not military or economic power, that makes America exceptional. And that is such a point that people seem not to understand, particularly our friends, the neoconservatives, who really do think American exceptionalism is the ability to go around the world and, and uh, create new nations. Um, and much of this book is, is about constitutionalism, about the need to take the Constitution uh, seriously. He talks about uh, the importance of the Ninth and Tenth Amendments. He, he talks about um, uh, how disappointing it was that, uh, and this is kind of unusual for a former Republican congressman, that he thinks Alito and uh, Roberts got... Uh, uh, an easy pass uh, in the hearings. Nobody asked them, for instance, do you think the president has the authority to arrest American citizens and hold them indefinitely without charging them with anything? You'd think that would be, at that time, uh, a question people would would ask. Uh, But they didn't. He also takes after uh, Robert Bork, and I say by extension, uh, Nino Scalia, for being so deferential to uh, Congress and so um, willing to to look at uh, majoritarianism as a driving force in their judicial philosophy. Um, so it's interesting, as an aside, I hear so many conservatives say, well, we have to elect John McCain because uh, there are going to be so many Supreme Court openings. And so all the rest doesn't matter. We just have to elect a Republican. And they're kind of ignoring the fact uh, that uh, Stevens and Kennedy and Souter were all nominated by Republicans and uh, not great jurists, I would argue. But beyond that, is John McCain going to nominate somebody to the Supreme Court who believes in the First Amendment? Because he certainly doesn't. Uh, I would be worried about that. And then there was this 
talk he gave uh, at the CPAC conference the other day here in Washington, and he said um, that he would uh, nominate only judges who, quote, take as their sole responsibility the enforcement of laws made by the people's elected representatives. Well, there's two problems with that. One, the Supreme Court doesn't enforce the law. The executive branch does. Basic understanding of the Constitution may be lacking there. And the other thing is, the implication is that somehow what the Supreme Court is defending are laws passed by Congress, when in fact it's the rules laid down by the framers that they're supposed to protect, which means striking down laws that Congress uh, comes up with. But the main uh, indictment of the conservative movement that one of the founders of the modern conservative movement uh, makes um, in this book is the mindless a vitriolic partisanship of the GOP and how it's been translated into kind of a slavish devotion to the GOP president and the abject willingness uh, to give the executive branch of government anything it wants. Um, Mickey attacks um, the abuse of, of uh, executive power and uh, he's dead on uh, with his analysis. It's powerful, it's intelligent. And it's something that conservatives should really look at. Um, and I might add, it lays the, uh, the groundwork uh, for my colleague Gene uh, Healy's soon-to-be-published uh, uh, book, The Cult of the Presidency, very similar arguments. Uh, he blames, Mickey blames uh, much of this on Newt Gingrich, um, and I'd agree with him. I love one subsection of the book entitled uh, Reject the Destructive Legacy of Newt Gingrich, and I do think uh, people overlook the nature of, of Newt's uh, contribution. True, in 94, he did rally the troops and convince them that they could win. But if you listen to Newt, it's like listening to a Mercedes engine rev up and never get into gear. Uh, he doesn't talk about constitutionalism. He doesn't talk about limited government. He doesn't talk about the proper role of government. I heard him speak at a Club for Growth meeting in Florida uh, last year. And it was all about we're going to get rid of duplicative uh, programs in government. We're going to use the Internet to reduce the cost of, uh, of health care. And, um, and the whole thing is focused on efficiency. I don't think you run a, a revolution on, uh, on efficiency. Efficiency anyway, of course, for those of us who believe in limited government, is a two-edged sword. Uh, the more efficient government is, the more things it can do. Uh, so anyway, I'm... I'm with Mickey on, uh, on the Gingrich question. Um, he writes, and, and this is the main element of the book, I think, that he's trying to get across, is this abuse of, of executive power. He says, what is frightening is to have a president who lacks an understanding of or who is dismissive of constitutional constraints on this authority. The Bush uh, presidency has been marked by an arrogance of, of power. And then he talks a bit about the, the uh, unitary uh, executive power that neocons, John Yoo, and people like that push, uh, which is a very dangerous concept, the idea that the president runs the executive branch and can tell uh, uh, agencies to just ignore what Congress has, has passed. Um, there's one thing he says that I think reveals one flaw in the book, and um, when he writes, uh, 
if one branch of government is constitutionally a little more equal than the others, it isn't the executive branch, by which I think he means uh, Congress. He was in Congress for 16 years, which is a no-no. You should not be there more than six years. <laughs> but uh, So we have our differences on, on uh, issues of term limits. Um, by the way, I, I thought I should be there. I thought the other guys should not be there. I, was, <laughs> I actually would agree with that. Maybe you are kind of... You're the exception that proves the rule about term limits. But he writes, um, uh, the determined effort to establish term limits, thereby weakening the institutional knowledge, skill, and effectiveness of the legislative branch. Well, the institutional knowledge is the knowledge of how to get earmarks through. It's the knowledge of how to create legislation. And it's why you want term limits. Uh, The effectiveness of the legislative branch uh, is a function of doing less, not more. And uh, the longer people are in Congress, um, it seems to me uh, the more deals they've, they've struck, the more they forget that it's not their money that they're spending, it's somebody else's hard-earned money. And um, I'm, I'm all for getting rid of term limits for the Senate. But the House, um, I'm very much in favor of it for a number of reasons, for, the, for that reason that I think people, uh, uh, you know, do lose sight of what they're there for the longer they're there. And I do think Mickey was a happy exception to that rule, but it is a rule in general. Uh, the other thing is it's often overlooked with term limits is I think there is an adverse selection process that uh, a lot of people might be willing to spend two, four, six years in Congress to do their civic duty, but they'd rather be in the private sector. And I would argue that you want people in the House of Representatives who would rather not be there. And, um, and what they look at is a process whereby career politicians are running everything. Their voice is not going to have very much influence, and so they say the heck with it. Another thing that is overlooked, I think, a bit in the book is how campaign finance um, reform, so-called, has made it very, very difficult for challengers to have any effect uh, whatsoever. Uh, the, the laws, there's not a word in McCain-Feingold that is not designed to protect incumbents, and it's a bipartisan phenomenon. So I would I spend more time on that. Um, I would also, I'll wrap up here, so I'm not supposed to speak longer than Mickey, but I think um, uh, he refers to, I, I would trace the change of the, of the conservative movement uh, somewhat differently than he would. I um, I think that the, the decline started with the Morning in America campaign of uh, Reagan in 1984. He was a very popular president who could have pretty much done what he wanted to and rather create a mandate for less government, private Social Security accounts or whatever. Uh, they just you know, put a coat over his shoulder and had him walk along the beach in California and, and film that, and that was his campaign. Uh, Now, he won 49 states as a result of that, but better that he won 40 states and had a mandate. Uh, He didn't do that. That was a big mistake. The second mistake Reagan made was he had lunch with uh, George H.W. Bush uh, once a week for eight years. And if he didn't realize by then that Bush didn't have an ideological bone in his body, and indeed Bush was openly disdainful of the vision thing, as he called it. But America is about the vision thing. And uh, so... Bush was never elected president, in my view. Uh, 
Reagan was elected for a third term, and it could have been anyone. It should have been somebody better than Bush. But during the Bush years, the supply-side movement, uh, Mickey refers to it as the new right, uh, but I, I think the supply-side movement was, was very detrimental to, the, to our cause of limited government because people like Jude Wininski, who was a big government Democrat, um, and uh, people like uh, Art Laffer and Jack Kemp consciously developed a strategy of saying, look, we shouldn't talk about the size of government. We shouldn't talk about the r- proper role of government, the Constitution. We should just talk about tax cuts because really isn't the point to grow the economy. And I think, I think what they did is replace uh, liberty with economic growth. And, and liberty is what drives a movement for limited government, a sense of a, the desire to have the government leave you the hell alone. And instead it became, can we grow the economy real fast? And so uh, that's my instant analysis of what went wrong. Um, I hope you all buy a copy of Mickey's book upstairs because I, I get 10% of uh, whatever he grosses. <laughs> so anyway, it's a great book, Mickey. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Ed. Uh, we're going to have questions now, and what I would ask is that you wait for the microphone after I uh, uh, signal you, and then tell us who you are and any affiliations, and please have your question in the form of a question. Let's go with Roman here on the aisle. Wait, your mic is coming, Roman. For uh, 14 years uh, uh, in Congress, uh, now I have a lobbying practice in Washington, and I was struck in listening to this by the uh, your emphasis on the transfer of power from between branches of government toward the executive. And my question is, um, isn't there an even greater problem uh, between uh, the transfer of, of, of government power uh, from states uh, to the collective federal branches? Uh, and didn't isn't the fundamental problem that we have uh, the 17th Amendment, which basically emasculated the states in the federal process? And if it is, what do we do about it? Well, there's actually a, a couple of points. One, uh, one of the problems is within the uh, federal government, uh, the transfer of power from the Congress uh, to the executive branch, which I, I go on at some length about. Uh, another problem is the transfer of power from the states to the federal government. That's the second one. Uh, a third is, is simply a growth in federal power, period. Uh, and, and two of the examples uh, I use in the book, uh, in terms of my accusation that conservatives seem to have gone from a belief in limiting the power of government to a seemingly willingness to accept that there is no limit to the powers of government. Uh, One was the Terry Schiavo case, which doesn't require any additional comment, I think. The other is uh, in the state of Oregon, where the voters twice uh, voted uh, to permit persons who had been declared by more than one doctor to be terminally ill, you know, to have medicines prescribed for them 
not not administered to them, but prescribed for them so they could administer them to themselves, you know, so they could hasten their death. You know, unlike television, you know, in real life, a lot of people die slow, agonizing, painful deaths. And here was the federal government stepping in and saying, nonetheless, we've not only regulated you in your life, but we are going to tell you you must die slowly and painfully because we're the government and that's what we want. Uh, and that was conservatives who were leading that, you know, John Ashcroft and Don Nichols and others. You know, so, so it's, it's more than that. Part of it is the flow from, from the states to the federal government. Some of it's within the, within the federal government. Uh, but, but I do have to – may I use your question to challenge you? Uh, in, in, on the, on the, Paid for these microphones. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> on, on the question, you, you referred to earmarks and term limits. Uh, my objection was uh, to the growth of the executive branch as opposed to the legislative branch. You know, not that I want either one to grow more powerful, but the growth of the executive as opposed to the legislative. If you removed earmarks, the, the problem with earmarks is, of course, that they are often not transparent. They are often not voted upon. They are, they are inserted quietly, secretly, and so forth. Okay? I'll admit, it, I'll admit that, and, and that should be changed. It must be changed. When you remove the ability of what, – what's an earmark? That is the Congress of the United States determining what the money will be spent on. If you remove that, that doesn't remove spending. It just means the spending decisions are being made by somebody unknown to you in the executive branch – without any knowledge about whether that person had a conflict of interest, without any hearings. They, it just shows up so it doesn't change anything except the decision about where the money will be spent is made by some anonymous bureaucrat, you know, secretly without any input from, from the people or uh, uh, any public hearings instead of by the people's representatives, you know. And so that's, you know, I, I would say that you have actually been advocating stronger, more centralized government, well, and I'm sorry to see it. <laughs> I am sorry to see it, too. But I uh, can I just respond? Sure. Yeah, sure, I can. And uh, <laughs> no, stop. Stop. <laughs> no, I, you know, may, maybe earmarks was the wrong thing to bring up. I mean, you have in your book, you talk about uh, Hamden uh, uh, v. Rumsfeld and uh, uh, how the Supreme Court did the right thing. And then the Congress passed a bill that actually gave the president more power than he would have had before that bill in response to this. So my point would be that you're, 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 you're too soft on Congress, that they are constantly doing unconstitutional things. They vote for uh, uh, Buckley or uh, no, Buck, no McCain-Feingold. Uh, they vote for the, the um, prescription drug benefits. They do things that are completely, and I think it's a function of the career politicians. I would rather have a citizen legislature. Yeah, I, the book really is very hard on Congress, too, and especially on the Republican Congress. Just a point, if you're under 30, the, what Ed said about paying for the microphone, that, that refers to something Ronald Reagan said in 1980, so you can, that everyone has sort of a nice memory of. So you, yeah. you might want to go research that. Um, let's go over here. I think that, yes, that gentleman. Uh, well, you Just wait a second for the mic.
Well, you know, I think it's a very, very good question in the way I, you know, since I wrote the book, I got to define it myself for, you know, what I thought conservative meant. Uh, and I'll go back to something I said, you know, when I was at the podium, and that is that um, prior to the Goldwater years, uh, there there was the European model of conservatism. As I said, Winston Churchill, you know, would re- refer for reverence for the king and the, and the church. Uh, that was basically it. Prior to Goldwater, it was reverence for Wall Street. You know, it, it was, uh, you know, uh, it, it was something that had no, didn't talk about liberty at all. And what Barry Goldwater brought into the movement starting in 63, 64, 62, 63, 64, uh, was a new sense that there was a conservatism that was conserving the basic principles of the Constitution. So that to me, that's what it is. To me, there is virtually no difference between libertarian and what I think of as true American conservatism. And I keep going back in the book to using that phrase, American conservatism, different from uh, uh, conservatism in other countries and, and different from what would be called a social or cultural conservatism, Dress modestly, mow your lawn, you know, do, do that kind of stuff. You know, American conservatism was based on conserving very specific principles that limited what government could do. And, and you remember uh, that there were many great Americans uh, who opposed uh, the passage of the Constitution, and then they worried that even in the Bill of Rights— you know, that by spelling out a few, by underlining, highlighting, if you will, a few of the rights that the American people retained, you know, that would cause somebody maybe in the 21st century to believe those were all the rights we retained. Uh, and uh, so American conservatism was about the idea that our rights belong to us by birth, a priori, you know, before government. Uh, and that what we did was we gave a few of those to government. So I guess my answer to you, it's a good question, is that American conservatism as I see it, and that got lost and that I want to reclaim, uh, is basically a libertarian uh, philosophy. Well, oh, every time I see people on television who proclaim themselves to be conservative spokespeople or who are referred to by the press as conservative spokespeople, I cringe 
Rush Limbaugh wouldn't know a conservative if he tripped over one. You know, uh, nor Ann Coulter, nor Sean Hannity, nor, you know, uh, nor Tom DeLay. I mean, that has nothing to do with conservatism. So, you know, good point. You want to say? Uh, yeah, we libertarians don't mow our lawns. <laughs> <laughs> Let's come down here on my right. The gentleman here. Hi, Mickey. Uh, you, Hi, Jim. You didn't... Um, comment too much about uh, financial conservatism, fiscal restraint, and the containment of deficits in your your overview, but I would love to hear you hear more on that. But I also want to ask you one more pointed, specialized question. When about the habeas corpus passed in, you know, signed by King John in 1215 that included uh, habeas corpus as well as other provisions it doesn't, that prevents the state from taking a person and holding him or her without a neutral party deciding if there's a valid case to be made. As you know, the, as the thing was referred to in, 19, uh, in, in 2006, in the last days of the Republican uh, Congress, Arlen Specter, then the chair of the Judiciary Committee, passing that, that, that bill that basically suspends habeas corpus for enemy combatants, said, well, this is clearly unconstitutional, but we'll let the Supreme Court clear it up. Now, if that is an abdication of conservatism and of Republican leadership in the Senate, what is? I, I should say, since th- that's Jim Moody who served with me in Congress. Um, good to see you. Uh, he was in the wrong party, but, you know, maybe he's moving away. Um, uh, well, first, I, Jim, I can't really say a lot about, you know, the, the economic. You know, I, I believe in the free enterprise system. I believe in... Uh, but that doesn't mean unrestricted power, you know, by by corporate raiders either. I, you know, I, I think Carl Icahn wouldn't know a conservative if he, if he saw one. Uh, but you know, I, I do believe in free trade. I believe in, in free movement of capital. I, be, I believe in uh, 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 all the the libertarian precepts, you know, of a free market. Habeas corpus. I, you know, it, it's it, this administration has made it very difficult. To you, you always want to say this is the most egregious thing they've done. No, no, no. This is the most egregious thing they've done. But I don't know of anything worse uh, than the idea by by this administration that it has the right to lock people up without trial, without charges. Uh, you know, in, in that case. The president is not merely referring to the Constitution, which the Constitution says you cannot suspend it uh, unless you're invaded or there's an insurrection, a civil war. Uh, so, I mean, it's clearly prohibited, despite what an idiot like Alberto Gonzalez might say, who, you know, never understood it. But um, it, it, this is one of the most fundamental, basic protections of human liberty, you know, in, in, in all of history. Uh, and for the way that this, this administration has simply disregarded habeas corpus rights uh, is perhaps the worst thing it has done and something that no conservative should allow to stand. The final point that you, uh, uh, that you made, Jim, was what? I wrote down, what did I write down here? I wrote a note. Uh, oh, oh, yeah, oh. Well, it's two things. You know, Arlen, I like Arlen. And, you know, Arlen always says the right thing and then doesn't do anything about it, uh, which, is, which is terrible. But, but in fact, um, we, we have not only 
uh, acquiesced to presidential power. But we, we bought totally into Marbury versus Madison, you know, that we just let the Supreme Court decide everything. The Supreme Court's in charge. Uh, and I was saying to Ed before we came in here, it's instructive to go back and look uh, at Abraham Lincoln's first inaugural address uh, in which he said very clearly, you know, that the Supreme Court is the final arbiter of the case that is before it at the moment and the parties to the case that is before it at the moment, period. You know, the idea that that we have said, well, they'll take care of it. We don't need to worry about protecting the Constitution is really a frightening uh, evolution in our in our way of thinking. I was just uh, I mentioned that Club for Growth meeting I was at uh, one of the dinner speakers was Mitt Romney. And I asked him this question. Do you think the president of the United States has the constitutional authority to arrest an American citizen on American soil, hold him indefinitely without charging him and with no right of habeas corpus? And Romney said, well, uh, on tough questions like that, I'd get two smart lawyers on either side and have them debate it in front of me. Then I asked the same question of, of uh, uh, McCain, no, no, um, uh, Rudy Giuliani. And he said, I would use that power very sparingly. So both of them think they have the constitutional authority. Down front here, please. Yeah, Wait. Wait a minute. I watched your uh, your testimony this morning. It was amazing. It was it really really was excellent. Um, my question is this: um, Given the angry reaction you had that you cited in your talk, given the fact that the Republicans that you spoke with over in the House are never going to do anything about strengthening War Powers Act. Um, I'm a delegate for Ron Paul at the Republican convention. Given the treatment of Ron Paul by the conservative media and the conservative – the Republican Party in general, I'm wondering if lost is the right word in the title of your book. Isn't it really they're dead, that they philosophically can never come back to what we believe in? Well, you know, that may be true. I mean I, I hope it's not true. I hope we can, we can reclaim it um, at the hearing, you know um, – some people are starting to speak up and say, you know, we need to get our principles back. I, uh, Ed referred to my comments about Newt. What Newt did wrong primarily was that he created an environment in which uh, Republicans in Congress forgot about everything except partisan advantage. Uh, and therefore, when you do that, the leap that, that comes from that is that when what all you care about is your party winning, the president is no longer the head of another branch. He's the quarterback of your team, and you don't sack your own quarterback. Uh, and Newt created that, and that uh, or he had a lot to do with creating it. Uh, that's part of the problem. But I think hopefully years in the minority Will, will cause conservatives, Republicans anyway, to step back and say, wait a minute, you know, let's reexamine what we are here. Uh, I was asked in 2006, I think it was Washington Monthly, that did a special issue asking conservatives to write articles saying why it was necessary for Democrats to take control of Congress. And, and I refused to write the article. But the reason I refused was because I, I said, if the only way you can check a president is to have a Congress of the other party, you know, then the whole Madisonian framework failed. You know, and what we need to do is to get Republicans 
and conservatives to understand, you know, that they have obligations that go beyond partisan politics. James Madison was right when he warned against factions, when he warned uh, against parties. Uh, and we're now seeing, we're paying the price for that. But I don't want to quite go as far as you and think it's unsolvable and we can't get it back. Um, I'm trying to raise money. I'm not trying to get money from here. But, but I'm trying to get money to send my book to every delegate to the Republican National Convention, to every Republican state legislator, to every Republican member of Congress, you know, because if you can get – it's not that they have willingly turned their back on conservative principles. They don't ever think about them. They think, I got elected as a Republican. That's my team. Uh, and we need to get them to back to, to thinking about what's, what's this all about and what am I in this for. So I hope you're not right. Next Next, um, here, on the right side this time. Yeah. Good afternoon. My name is Richard Ranger. Uh, I'm with API, but I'm not a, speaking for them. Um, and it's good to see you again, Congressman. I met you at the Republican Convention in Oklahoma in 1978 when we were both wow. a little younger. Um, nah. Anyhow, my question is this. Speaking to your remark that Southern populists uh, infused – their brand into the conservative movement and were followed by the so-called Christian conservatives. Describe, if you would, a, a, a principled conservative approach to the moral issues. I think there is one. I don't think it's been made in about, you know, a generation or more. But uh, there are expansive government powers that intrude on people's moral beliefs there hasn't been a principled conservative movement against those expansive powers. Instead, there's been a Christian conservative re reaction. You know, well, I, I start with a, a fundamental belief that there is a role for government, but it's not uh, an all-inclusive role. And therefore, if you believe that, not you, but if a person believes that there are societal norms that are destructive, that are destructive to family, that are destructive to uh, or the raising of children, that are, you know, uh, I think every citizen who believes that has not only a right but an obligation to speak out, to try to shape the public environment. Uh, where I have a problem is if it's not doing harm to another person, I have a problem with the federal government coming in and deciding what is the proper moral code. You know, um, America is going through a major transformation at the moment demographically, right? So a lot of the people who are now proclaiming, you know, their religious certitude uh, as, as what should be imposed upon society at large may have a slightly different view if, if eventually their perspective becomes a minority perspective uh, in the country. I think the, the only safe course is for us to say that personal persuasion, you know, of the most, you know, aggressive kind, speeches, rallies, what, you know, uh, I believe in public activism, but, but stop short of saying the federal government, this is what I think is the right moral stand, and therefore I'm going to use the federal government to impose it on other people who may not share that view. That's where I think it goes too far. The woman in front here, the mic will come down.
Good afternoon. I'm Della Henry. I'm an independent international consultant with specialization in Brazil. And my family helped elect you many years in a row in Oklahoma. Thank you. Thank you for your representation in Oklahoma. I was thumbing through the book quickly in the beginning, and I, I also was caught immediately with the new Gingrich uh, part. And your accession of you know, power has become the, the, the pursuit of government. I've lived abroad the past 10 years, and I'll, I'll tell you, honey, it's not just here. <laughs> and it's certainly not limited. Although the definition at the end of your book, I think in his final words, he really does a definition of conservatism, which I was showing to this gentleman, because it, in one paragraph, it's a lovely cons- concession of the definition. But I think what I wanted to get back to was the new Gingrich point. And in your point, you said, you know, the best thing you can do is to do another path. Um, I've got the books marked, but, you know, against, uh, besides the Republican Party, yet within the, 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 the search to redefine, to retake space for the conservative movement, if you want to call it such, you need the backing of these parties to be elected. It's something you all just pointed to. So maybe I'd like to hear some practical things, how to educate people, how to spread the word, and not just to people who are already elected, already in power. Because honestly, I question their motives. I mean, how can we get it to universities, to high schools, to social, social studies classes and teachers? Thanks. You, you have actually raised a very depressing point. Um, seriously, I, I, uh, after I left Congress, I taught for 11 years at Harvard. Uh, and I now teach at Princeton, have been there for four years. Uh, and I was a visiting professor at Georgetown for a couple of years. And in all of those institutions, finest educational institutions in our country, uh, in the public policy schools, the government schools, the focus is almost all on the executive branch, very little on the legislative branch and its role. Uh, a quick example of that, um, I have a legislative assistant who I really like, I mean, a good friend of mine, uh, but who uh, was representing me on uh, the Appropriations Committee when I was in Congress. Uh, he was my foreign policy expert. Uh, and I supported uh, the U.S. support of the Contras in Nicaragua. And there was the Boland Amendment, which restricted the ability of, of the Congress and, and the, the administration to support the Contras. Uh, and my legislative assistant was very upset about that. And he came to me and he said, Mickey, this is absolutely outrageous. You know, this is important. This is foreign policy. This is the president's domain. You know, you need, you need to speak up and, and get the Congress to butt out. And I said, well, of course I will, you know, and, but I don't want to sound stupid. So I want you to go get me a copy of the Constitution, blow it up really big, highlight the part that says the president's in charge of foreign policy. And, you know, and I'll, and get me a pointer, and I'll use it. And he came back a couple of days later. He said, "Well, I can't find it." Uh, and that's that's right. You know, Article One, Section One, all legislative power is is in the, with the people in the Congress. You know, the executive. So part of it is when when you are at the major universities, and they have hardly any courses about the Constitution. Hardly any courses about the legislative branch. When you have the news media talking about the president now for a week stepping out of his role as head of government, you know, you have all the – I mean, it's overwhelming. 
how little the average citizen knows, how little the average political reporter knows, how little the average political science professor knows, you know, about what our system of government is. So, so basically, you know, it, it, it is, it's a really big rebuilding process. Uh, I hope my book is a little push in that direction, but, but th- this is a long-term thing for us to – we've lost so much of what American libertarian, freedom, liberty-based uh, politics and government is about. It's going to take us a real dedicated effort to get it back. Let me uh, – can I sure. – yes, I can. Uh, I um, – I would agree with Mickey about the ignorance of the uh, of Americans about the political process. The, the Kennedy School that Mickey taught at for so long uh, and the Brookings Institution and I think the Washington Post some years back did a survey of political knowledge among Americans. And because of the conceit inside the Beltway is that everybody hangs on every word that comes out of Congress and out of the Washington Post, uh, they were, I think... Uh, they never did the study again, but it was something like 80% of Americans can't name their congressman. Uh, and so at the same time you're having that, you have this campaign finance uh, legislation, uh, which does not recognize that money is a proxy for information. People need more information. Uh, but it's designed to protect incumbents and to rigidify the political system. If you want to open it up, uh, I, I believe there would be a serious Green Party in this country and a serious small-L Libertarian Party in this country if you didn't have contribution limits. Get rid of them, have full disclosure if you insist, but uh, you would have, uh, to me, there are a plurality of Americans who are socially tolerant, believe in the free market, and skeptical of the U.S. being the world's policeman. That alternative is not available right now. Get rid of the contribution limits, and it would be. Gentleman right here near our last speaker. My name is Larry Madison. I'm with the American Conservative Defense Alliance. First, Congressman, I want to thank you for your book. I only wish you'd have written it about five years ago. Um, uh, it's I have been so disheartened. But I've been in this movement a long time out on the grassroots, and I just cannot believe what has happened. I want to ask you about the unitary executive. When I, I never heard of it before, the Bush administration. And uh, when, when they started talking about it, and so I, I looked into it a little bit, and they someone claims, whether it's people in the Bush administration or whoever, that it was initially formulated in the Reagan administration. Is that accurate? Well, it's it's not accurate that it was initially formulated there, but it's been proposed by presidents over a long time. The idea that uh, people who work in the executive branch work only for the president. Well, they don't. They work for the people of the United States. Uh, and um, although that, that kind of quick story, when um, this is one of the scary ideas, when when. Uh, uh, when, when Howard Hunt, who was one of the architects of the Watergate break-in, died, his obituary quoted one of his famous uh, quotes when, uh, when people asked him why he did it. He said, well, I thought when the president said it was legal, you know, said that he wanted it done, that made it legal. Uh, and I think that's a common view, uh, certainly common in the White House and, and people who work there. Uh, the unitary executive has never been asserted by any previous president uh, as as vigorously and as aggressively as this president has done it. No, nobody has ever done that before. And let me give you the worst example I can think of that has just happened. Uh, two days ago, 
Tuesday, uh, I met, I was with the members of the House Judiciary Committee staff when they announced uh, that they were bringing a civil action uh, against Harriet Myers and, and uh, Josh Bolton for refusal to um, uh, appear before the Congress in the investigation into the firing of U.S. attorneys. The interesting part about that, fitting in with the unitary executive, was that they were claiming, Harriet Myers and, and Bolton, were claiming immunity. Now, first, the, the committee asked them to come testify, politely, I hope. You asked them to come. And they said no. So then they were subpoenaed. Then they were subpoenaed. A congressional subpoena. They ignored the congressional subpoena. And they claimed immunity. And here's the grounds on which they claimed it. They claimed it as really an extension of the idea of executive privilege. There is a legal doctrine of executive privilege. And it says it protects the right of the president to get honest, candid information from his advisors and advice from his advisors without being looked into. But it relates only to communication between the president and his advisors. The president and Myers and Bolton and everybody else said the president was not involved in these conversations. So now, in in keeping with the idea of the unitary executive, this administration claims, essentially, that the Congress cannot inquire into any conversation that any member of the president's staff had with anybody else. Uh, which is just outrageous. Uh, But that's how much. So unitary executive idea that I am the president, therefore I'm the head of the executive branch, has been morphed into something well beyond anything any previous president has ever advocated. Let's try the back front row there. Gentleman's had his hand up. I'm Jeff Gaynor with Council for America. Vicki, I'm very sympathetic with your concern with protecting American citizens' constitutional rights, but I get the impression from you you have a much more expansive notion of this and that the right of habeas corpus, for example, extends to those imprisoned in Guantanamo, the uh, noncombatants who have been apprehended by American military forces, and presumably if, if that's the case, would that also extend to anyone apprehended by American military forces in Afghanistan and Iraq? Do they have a right of habeas corpus? If so, this is a radical expansion of the notion, I think, of habeas corpus and very much alters the whole history we've had of Americans' engagement in warfare and the rights of prisoners. Well, there's actually a couple of parts to that. One is that uh, there are places in which the, um, the, the Constitution is vague because the Constitution sometimes refers to the rights of citizens and sometimes to the rights of persons. Uh, and, you know, I'm, I'm not legal scholar enough to sort that out. Uh, who would make that decision? It's not up to the executive branch. It, you know, if it is something where, in fact, exceptions can be made for prisoners, that's up to the Congress, not the executive, because under the Constitution, the, the laws, the rules governing the treatment of prisoners is a constitutionally granted power to the legislative branch, not to the executive branch. So even in that case, the president denying habeas rights to foreigners – you know, it is a violation of, of the Constitution. It's not his authority to do so. If the right exists to make the exception, it's the right of the Congress, not the executive. So that's part of it. Uh, the other is that 
our Constitution may be interpreted to mean that only American citizens are granted habeas except in times of insurrection uh, and invasion. Uh, but in fact, habeas has been one of the most long-standing guarantees uh, of the, ri- the relationship between any government and people. Uh, it is a protection of basic liberties. We, how would we feel if an American citizen were arrested in France or Britain or Iraq or anywhere else and thrown by that government into prison and held there without charges being filed, you know, we, we would be threatening to send in the Marines, you know, or, you know, we did it in Tripoli, right? So, um, you know, I, I, I would say regardless of how I, somebody, a better constitutional scholar than I am, would have to determine whether this relates to citizens or, or persons. Uh, but I think morally, morally, the idea of holding somebody prisoner without ever charging them with anything, just locking them up forever, uh, is a violation of every kind of moral idea I can imagine. Uh, in the back again, on the aisle. Ilya Shapiro here at Cato. Um, the Bush administration has done damage to two, well, at least two institutions, the Republican Party and its, uh, as a proponent of classical liberal or libertarian principles, and the executive, um, which is you know, even when the executive is acting constitutionally, it's very difficult to, to defend often um, because some of the policy problems and, and all the other ways that it's been acting unconstitutionally. So my question is... Um, these these types of damage that the uh, that the administration has done how how long term is it and does it depend on uh, you know what the Democrats do or is it more of a of an institutional um, uh, type of effect or or something in the political culture? Well, first I would expand what you said because the uh, the Bush administration has done damage to far more than just the Republican Party, you know, and the executive. Uh, it's damaged the Congress, obviously, uh, with the Congress's own complicity. Uh, It has damaged the military terribly. I mean, how somebody could claim to be a pro-military leader uh, at a time when you send American troops over without enough equipment, without enough armor, without enough manpower, you know, uh, how could you be more anti-military than that, overstretching the military to where it now... uh, uh, would have a hard time meeting any other potential threats. But in terms of are these things long-term, uh, I sort of hope the damage to the Republican Party is long-term enough, you know, that the party says we can't, we can't walk off that cliff, you know, that it forces some introspection. Sometimes things have to get bad enough that, that you have to go back and re-examine where, where you're coming from. Uh, in terms of the executive, I think that, from a constitutional standpoint, Bush has damaged the executive in the sense of it being a responsible part of government that operates within a framework of constitutional rules. In terms of power to the presidency, you know, he may have enhanced the executive tremendously because when, when something is done and it is not challenged, you know, just go back to Marbury versus Madison. When, when things are not challenged and a precedent is set, it becomes very hard in the future to reverse that precedent. That precedent. So he may have done great, 
He may have done great harm to the military, to the Republican Party, uh, but he may have made the executive branch, unless we do something about it pretty quickly, permanently much more powerful than it's been. uh, And none of the candidates for president have been very forthright about saying they were going to roll back executive power. Certainly the people who are sitting on the Supreme Court today have not been very forthright. You know, occasionally they will do it, but, but not generally about rolling back executive power. So um, I think he's done a lot of harm that's going to take us a long time to repair. Questions? Uh, the gentleman there, those two both will probably be our last ones. James Ryle, uh, historian, 20th century politics. Okay, then I give up giving any answers. I mean, you know, <laughs> historian, right? No, this isn't hard. Uh, some people have argued that the American people have never voted, certainly in recent times, for pure libertarianism, but it's been libertarianism mixed with some of the same allies that you've referred to earlier. People who espouse neoconservative values, people who espouse uh, socially conservative values. Question is twofold. First, do you, in fact, agree with that assessment, diagnosis? Second, uh, if you see any even small measure of accuracy, truth, or whatever, that diagnosis, that assessment, What would then be the future of the libertarian movement? Is it to continually seek power influence through allying with politics making strange bedfellows, people who are, one is not necessarily, if one is a libertarian, fully comfortable with, or is it to be a gadfly movement on the margins, but not exercising and perhaps not then even really aspiring to achieve political power in its own right. Um, one of the things I, I for, for, the, for the purpose of this answer, I will sort of equate libertarian and conservative, um, as you've already done. Uh, one of the uh, things that we used to say as conservatives all the time was that we were not Republicans, we were conservatives, and the Republican Party was merely the vehicle we were using you know, to gain political power. And in my book, I suggest that what's important is to regain a belief in the principle as a head of the party. And when the party does not stand by the principles you believe in, you should abandon the party, or at least if you're in Congress, not vote with the party. I am. I, I think the people have voted exactly as you've said, but they've done it because they haven't been given the other alternative. I, I, I'm thinking uh, you know, a lot here, you know, but if Ron Paul had been a governor or a U.S. senator and maybe 10 or 15 years younger uh, and had not gotten veer, veering off into the Federal Reserve and these things, you know, I, I think he might have done much, much better. I think the people have not been given the alternative. It could be on the Republican ticket. But the people have really not been given an alternative uh, of voting for somebody who more closely represents libertarian sort of constitutional principles. Uh, and I think that building a coalition with people who don't stand for your principles uh, only usually ends up empowering them, not you. 
And I think libertarians should be very careful about embracing the religious right or embracing the neocons because by making common cause with their party, you, you then become part of the, part of the office, part of, part of the uh, party holding office. Uh, but then you're not going to have any sway in that party. You know, I, I think it's a dangerous thing to start aligning yourself with people who believe the opposite of what you believe in. You can't really align yourself with neoconservatives anyway because there are none. It's a movement with a head and no body. Yeah. You, you can walk around Washington all day long and not bump into a neoconservative. But uh, I do think I agree with Mickey or you that uh, if there had been a, uh, a, a an effective uh, small-L libertarian candidate. I mean, look, Ron Paul is, uh, he's, he comes across as anti-immigrant. He comes across as protectionist. He's against NAFTA, CAFTA, uh, you know, treaties that clearly increase free trade and are a good thing. Uh, so he's with Obama on that and Clinton. Uh, if you had an effective candidate, as I said earlier, I do believe a plurality of Americans in this day and age are socially tolerant. They don't care what you do behind closed doors. They think you have a right to free speech. They think the market works and that planned economies don't work. They think taxes are too high. And they think it's crazy to try to be the world's policeman. That alternative is not available to them. If you got rid of the contribution limits, the alternative would spring up immediately. And as I said earlier, I think a Green Party would decimate the Democrats if you had that alternative. People say, why didn't Ross Perot create a new party, a populist party? And the answer is because he was facing $1,000 contribution limits. He could spend all he wanted on his own campaign for president. But unless you have viable congressional campaigns, and with a $1,000 limit, you can't. By the way, the $2,300 limit today is lower in real terms than the 74 amendments, which put in the $1,000 limit. You can't have viable congressional campaigns. You can't have a viable third party. We'd have four parties in this country if we just got rid of these ridiculous unconstitutional limits. Last question, the woman in the second row in the back. She's been waiting Thank you. My name is Cecilia Martinez. I'm with the Reform Institute. And, and um, I wanted to thank uh, Mickey for his contribution to one of our reports on congressional reform. And I look forward to reading your book. One of the things you touched on earlier was on partisanship and how the Congress is played by extreme partisanship. It's one of the things as I travel a country that that voters, average voters, are so sick and tired of of hearing about in Congress, the, the incivility. So what are other ways that we can restore civility and diminish the, the partisanship in Congress? You know, it has nothing to do with ideology. I run a program for the Aspen Institute, which brings together, we go out every year uh, and select rising young political stars uh, and bring them together for two things. One is we take uh, foreign trips together. We just got back from Egypt and Israel and Jordan and a day in Ramallah. The wrong day in Ramallah was the day that the Israelis counterattacked on Gaza, you know, and they said shut Ramallah down on a protest strike. Uh, but we did that. We go to China and India. So, so we try to increase this is bipartisan group. Half Republic, deliberately, half Republican, half Democrat. Uh, and, and you give them a, a chance together without reference to their party identities, uh, to seek out information, to talk to human rights activists as well as government officials and try to understand issues. We also 
three times during their two-year fellowship, take them to Aspen, and we sit around a table with no staff, no reporters, you know, no press, no anything, uh, and talk, Republicans and Democrats, about Aristotle and Locke and Hobbes and, you know, and talk about the great values and principles of democracy and, and society so that we, we break down that, that wall. Jim is a Democrat. He's a friend of mine. Uh, there was a time when people did that. Uh, so part of what you need to do is to get people out of this cocoon they're in when they're on the hill where, where they see people in the other party merely as the enemy. Uh, we, we've got to get them away from that and get them to refocus on why they got into government in the first place, you know, what they hope to achieve, and to learn to respect people on the other side. I was told when we started this program, oh, you're trying to create a centrist politics. No. You know, pol- democracy is about bringing all the different ideas together and having an honest debate within the confines of the Constitution. Uh, so uh, you've got to get Republicans and Democrats to again get to know each other as human beings. And, and when you do that, you'll break down a lot of this nonstop partisan warfare so that people will vote on ideas and principles and the merits of legislation and not by which party is supporting uh, one or the other position. I think on that, uh, we will call a close to our event today. I'd like to thank Mickey for coming by, Ed for his comments, and I'd like to thank all of you for coming tonight. Uh, to this afternoon. And remember, you can buy a copy of Reclaiming Conservatism upstairs. So please join us upstairs for dinner, lunch.